hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 1250 BCE in the ancient Egyptian capital of Thebes on the bank of the Nile River. You sit just outside the workshop of the dead, as your father called it, staring into the bright sky, your eyes watering in the white hot sun. But you don't even feel the heat. You barely feel anything. Since this morning, it's all been a blur. You can still hear the echoes of your father's panicked cries when he couldn't wake your mother from sleep, now eternal. You can't remember the moment you understood she was gone, or if you cried. It happened so fast. Maybe it was just a dream and you're the one asleep. No. No, she's gone, you tell yourself. She's gone. Like so many others, she fell ill and just didn't recover. And that's why you're here now with your father, who's meeting with the director. You have to act fast if your mother is going to reach the field of reeds. Your father emerges from the workshop. He bids the director goodbye and moves heavily to join you, as if he's wading through mud. What did he say? You ask. He sighs and looks around, his eyes glazed as if he too feels like he's caught in a bad dream. There are options, he says. But I need to review what it is we can afford. At any rate, he says we have three days before we have to bring her here to begin the process. Your father brushes past you and begins to walk towards home. You can't help but think of the rows of wrapped bodies laid out inside that workshop. The thought of your mother joining them? Of course, it was the way it had to be. But you did not expect to feel so confused. If your mother had to make her journey still, then where was she now? And where did she wait? And where would she be during the long 70 days that mummification would require. Before you can voice your questions, your father stops and turns back to face you. His eyes swim. If I could afford it, he says, she'd be treated like the pharaoh himself. All you can do is nod. Then you're on your way again together, returning alone to a home that will never be the same where the body of your mother awaits her passage to eternal life in the field of reeds. Hey you, thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash working overtime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working overtime. Now, let's fire up the time machine. Hey there, it's Karen here. Anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do as human beings over time and across cultures. Speaking of the human experience, death is about as universal as it gets. Ah, yes, the bittersweet awareness of our own mortality, an inevitable outcome that has obsessed humanity since time immemorial. Countless religious and philosophical traditions have attempted both to understand death and to transcend it, often through some concept of an afterlife. And in typical human fashion, just as we've sought meaning in death, we've tried to capitalize on it. 
And that's exactly what we're talking about today with our guest, Sophia Aziz, an expert on the thriving business of death and funerary work in ancient Egypt's New Kingdom. We'll cover everything you thought you knew about Egyptian mummification and burial, based on the incredible new biomedical technologies used by Sophia and her colleagues at the University of Manchester's KNH Center to learn more about this central concern of an eternally fascinating culture. So, get ready to uncover some ancient secrets that have long been kept under wraps. Oh, you knew I had to sneak in a mummy joke somewhere, right? Sophia has a bachelor's degree in human sciences and a postgraduate certificate in Egyptology from the University of Manchester. She's currently pursuing a master's in biomedical Egyptology with the KNH Center at the University of Manchester. And this is a unique program that combines the study of ancient Egypt with modern biomedical investigative techniques. Sophia's research focuses on ancient Egyptian medical practices and mummification procedures. She's given lectures and published her independent research in a range of publications and is a contributor to documentary TV programming on ancient Egypt. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Karen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. And this is one of those great topics that I, I, I like to say people think they know generally something about, you know, mummies are so famous and really iconic in pop culture, right? But I don't think so many of us really know how the ins and outs of that, that death industry, as I'm going to call it. You know, it's, it's such big business in the world today. I, I read $65 billion a year in the U.S. alone. I mean, it's massive. So I can't wait to talk to you a little bit about some of the really ancient roots for, you know, all the fuss we, we put around death. Yes, and in ancient Egypt, um, there's over 3,000 years of history in mummification. So the oldest anthropogenic mummy from ancient Egypt actually dates to 3,700 BCE. So we're talking Gosh. really old. Yeah, yeah 5,000 years. Well, really. it is incredible. All right, well, so this is a huge topic, obviously. Um, let's do the 101. What, what particular time period of that gigantic 5,000 year period, <laughs> if any, are we going to focus on? If you want to cover it all, you go for it. I'll try and keep <laughs> up. Um, and just, yeah, place us in the world. We're, we're in Egypt. When? Okay. So I think let's fast forward to the New Kingdom period, specifically the Ramesside period. So we're looking at 1292 BCE. So in ancient Thebes, by the bank of the Nile River, in southern Egypt. And this is really where mummification became available to anyone who could afford it. And the funeral business began to thrive. All right, great. So we're going to be talking about a time in Egypt when kind of every man and woman could look forward to being mummified if they had the cash. Exactly. So it's really from the Ramesside period that we see a paradigm shift in which the afterlife um, becomes available to even the commoners. And um, this is interesting because this is when we begin to see an actual funeral business. So we actually, this is the first glimpse that we have a funeral director, which is called a Wamu. So before this period, it's mainly the elite or the pharaohs that were given this privilege. So I think, you know, it shows a time where there's more prosperity, we're seeing that, you know, the population is growing, there's stability. And I suppose, you know, if you're seeing that the pharaoh is having this elaborate funeral and this promise for an afterlife, and you're a commoner who's slaving away, it just, I suppose, it seems quite unfair. And life would just obviously seem a little bit more difficult. So... I think if you look at the whole ideology and how it probably started, you want to offer the laborers more than just the hard life that they're enduring. So I suppose, you know, a promise of this amazing afterlife where you're living without pain and you're sort of in this paradise, 
you can sort of see why this shift um, happens and why everybody is being offered this amazing, I suppose we can call it heaven, although they called it the field of reeds. And I suppose, you know, ideologically for the Pharaoh as well, is going to make the people happy. I love how you put that. I've never heard it explained that way. And and it makes perfect sense as you present it as a, you know, a, a political decision, really, and a savvy one in some respects. Exactly, exactly. Because, um, you know, some of the workers, they have to work really hard. So I think definitely this, um, you can see why the state would have thought, you know, let's create this ideological shift where everybody can have this great afterlife. And then, of course, also, if you look at the priests, because they were involved in the funeral business, you know, from a business sense as well, you can imagine why this shift would happen as well, because now they're offering a funeral service to everybybody. Yeah, an awful lot more commoners than elites, right? I mean, there's exactly. one pharaoh. <laughs> so exactly. that's kind of a limited market. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, I can see, you know, that's, that's astute business sense there. And before we dive into the topic, I'd like to hear a little bit about your specialty, biomedical Egyptology. Right. So, um, so biomedical Egyptology, it's basically, it's an Egyptology degree, but um, it uses science to understand more about the people of ancient Egypt by applying technologies such as CT imaging, nucleic acid analysis, proteomics, and histology to basically study tissues, human tissues retrieved from Egyptological sites. So um, a biomedical Egyptologist will have an understanding of human biology, anatomy, disease, and medicine. So um, subjects that a biomedical Egyptologist will cover is um, human osteology, paleopathology, mummification, molecular paleopathology. Also, of course, ancient Egyptian medicine and 3D construction in mummy studies. What are some of the data types that, that a biomedical Egyptologist can hope to collect that a traditional Egyptologist simply could not? So I suppose, you know, traditional Egyptologists, they would focus on the ancient Egyptian language, society, culture, art, and, and the archaeology. And what we're doing is we're just using um, science, so the latest technology, to use science to actually study. So I suppose one of the greatest advances is probably molecular science. So DNA studies, basically. I suppose for me, what I find really important is CT imaging, because we're using non-destructive methods to find out so much about a person that died. It's incredible how much information you can retrieve just from CT imaging. And, um, you know, in, in the old days, they carried out autopsies, which were very destructive. And morally, we would not agree with a lot of the things that were done to human remains as well. So I think, you know, for me, the whole, you know, the technology is advancing all the time. So we basically don't have to unwrap a mummy. We can just put it through a CT machine and we can have a look at the amulets, or the jewelry they're wearing. We can look at the internal structure of the body. And it's, it's incredible. We can learn so much just by using this technology now. That is fantastic. And I think that that really echoes a lot of the movement that you see in archaeology towards more non-destructive, preservative approaches, you know, and it's again being driven by new technologies, new visualization technologies, not CT, because that's not going to necessarily help you cut into a, a, a solid bit of earth or a, oh. um, a feature of some kind, but um, it's not dissimilar the way that that very sophisticated imaging techniques, LIDAR specifically, um, seems to be everywhere all of a sudden, um, not without its high, high ticket price, which I can imagine True. some of the work that you're doing um, carries with it. But it it is just so well worth it in terms of not having to go and essentially destroy 
the remains that that you want to study because archaeology is destructive itself. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, this this is the future of um, studying ancient people. Of course, sometimes we, we don't have a choice and we do have slight destructive methods, but we try and keep them to a minimum. Yeah, well, and particularly, as, as you rightfully pointed out, you've got a whole um, entire moral issue around working with human oh, remains, which exactly. adds adds a, a different level of concern um, and, and the need for respect. So, well, fantastic. I can't wait to hear all about what you and your colleagues are discovering. And so let's dive right in. Sophia, what was what was an average day like? Or, you know, was there an average day for one of these workers in the ancient Egyptian death industry? It would start off like anybody else's day. So they'd start off with a breakfast. And in ancient Egypt, it would be a breakfast of bread and beer, sometimes onions. Oh, I, I love I would... a savory breakfast. <laughs> That yeah. actually pleases me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the beer. I mean, we couldn't imagine having beer for yeah, breakfast. Yeah, actually, I didn't know. Not so much the beer, but yeah. <laughs> but, you know, their beer was different from ours. It was more like a meal in itself. So it would have dates and honey and other goodies inside oh, it. that does sound good. It was, it was very nutrient. and um, But it was still alcoholic. And um, we think, you know, the alcohol level was a little bit less than what we have. But I remember the British Museum did an experiment and it was about five to six percent in strength. So That's a lot I, for breakfast. I know. I, I was quite surprised by that. But I suppose, you know, so the funeral director, um, who was known as the Wamu, um, I suppose his day would start having his breakfast. And then I can imagine there'd be whole lot of um, grieving families lining up to see him to discuss funeral arrangements and he would provide different options to them in terms of affordability and take care of the logistics of it all so he had quite a big task actually because he was the the go-to person who would be sorting everything out for them and in the meantime the embalmers who were at a different level in the funeral business, I suppose they would have to wash and dress for the grisly task ahead of dealing with getting up close and personal with cadavers. It couldn't have been an easy task. So I imagine they probably would have had a little bit more beer for breakfast. I was going to say, maybe they had more beer for breakfast. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So I think, you know, I think their job would have been particularly difficult day in, day out, dealing with death. You know, it wasn't easy. I'm interested in in the way you put that, that, that they would perhaps initially discuss affordability. Roughly speaking, what were the, the different options and how did they vary according to price? One thing to note about the whole business of embalming is that um, firstly, mummification was very variable over time and sometimes within the same period. And... Oh, it's so unfortunate, but the ancient Egyptians never told us how they did it. They never left any manuals because it was a secret. So we don't know. So a lot of the information that we have is from papyri, such as um, Bulak III, which is in the Cairo Museum, and Rind, which was discovered in the 1800s by Scottish archaeologists. And then, but these papyri only deal with the rituals of embalming and, you know, the day that you would do a certain ritual and with wrappings. But the only other sources we have is the Greek historian Herodotus, who traveled to Egypt around 450 BC, and Diodorus Siculus, writing around 60 BC. So we have snippets of clues. Mm. But what... Um, we're told is basically from Herodotus that there were three different packages for mummification. So the first package would be the Osiris package, which is the highest standard of mummification. And um, the second package, then there's a second one, which is not as good. And then the third one is a very basic package. 
And then, of course, we're also looking at um, what type of coffin they would have. So there's different levels in the coffins. And this we definitely know because of all the coffins that we've discovered. So we can see ourselves the difference in, the, in them. And then I suppose what funeral goods you're going to take with you. And, um, you know, are you going to have shaptis to help you in the afterlife? What other funeral goods are you going to have? If you're going to have a tomb, because not everybody had a tomb. So what decoration you're going to have in the tomb? And, you know, how the size of the tomb. So there, there was so much to think about. You know, so for us as biomedical Egyptologists, we get a lot of our information from actually looking at mummies. So this is where the science really helps. And um, so we're learning a lot of um, preconceptions. I suppose most people think that they know about ancient Egyptian mummification because it's so mainstream. Oh. And we're told the usual that, you know, about embalming, we're told that um, how they would remove the brain and keep the heart in the body. But we're learning that this was not always the case. Oh, Sometimes, wow. yeah. Tell us, and this Tell is us the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you know, we, we're seeing that there's so much variability in brain treatment. And um, this is sometimes within the same period. So it's not always because fashions, for instance, are changing. There's, there's just so much variability. So if I sort of maybe talk you through a little bit about the mummification process. That would be great. Let's start off with what happens to a person when they die, because this, this will help put into perspective. So when a person dies, the first organ to start decomposing is actually the brain. And, you know, decomposition actually happens as quickly as four minutes after death, we start decomposing. It's a very fast process. And then within two to four hours, liver mortis sets in. And this is where the, due to gravity, blood will pool in a certain area of the body. Then we have rigor mortis where the body starts to stiffen. Sorry about going on about the gory details, but it would really oh, help. Gory's to- good, gory's <laughs> good. Um, well, and then, you know, rigor mortis happens a few hours after death. Then we have a process called autolysis, where there's destructions of the body cells by, by our own enzymes. We sort of start self-destructing. And then comes a real gory, awful aftermath of putrefaction. And this is a process of decay. And the ancient Egyptians recognized all this. In fact, they called. So basically, when we're in putrefaction, we start having liquids coming out of our body. And the ancient Egyptians recognized this and called this the regu. So if we think about in ancient Egypt, how would they have handled this with the heat and the decomposition of the body? It was a lot to think about. Yeah, it sounds like you'd have to kind of get your loved ones quickly to the funeral director to kind of head off disaster. Exactly. And then and you think about the funeral director, how would he handle this? Because here he's thinking in his head, I need to get the body to the embalmers quickly because of the decomposition, depending on the time of the year, what sort of heat we're having. And at the same time, the grieving family, they want to have their loved one at home with them for a while. But by the fourth day, the body had to be with the embalmers. I mean, but there's no way they could have kept the body longer than two, three days in the home. And um, so the body would have been taken to the embalmers and it was actually the funeral director, the Maui, who arranged, who, he's the one that would arrange this. And um, so first of all, the body would be taken to a tent of purification. This was called an ibu. And what we believe happened here was a temporary structure with poles and linen. And here the body would be ritually washed. And I suppose this is very similar to um, what happens in a lot of religions these days as well. So first the body is washed. And, you know, it's not just, it's washed in a ritual way to the point they even have a vessel which collects 
some of the residue of this water and then I'm not quite sure what they do with it, but there's some sort of ritual act with this water. And then um, the body would be taken uh, to what was called the House of Beauty. And I love that. I love that it was called the House of Beauty. So they're making, the, I suppose, the dead person beautiful for the family. And this is where mummification took place. So if the brain was going to be removed, I mean, like I said, it wasn't always removed. So this would be done by breaking firstly through the ethmoid bone and then inserting um, what we're told is a metal hook. But actually, we've never found a metal hook, but what we have found is um, actually a brain removing implement made of plant materials. And it was, we found two actually in two um, mummies dating from the late period. And the reason they came up in the CT scan and they were lodged. Still oh, so they were in actually the in them. I was going to say, where, how would plant remains even survive? That's amazing. So what, what, tell us what you saw on the CAT scan to lead you to believe it was a plant material. So it was, a, it was called a monocotyledon which I think is quite a strong sort of plant material. So we don't know whether this was just a cheaper implement of removing the brain or maybe this is what they used routinely. We're not actually really sure. Like I said, sometimes the brain was not removed and instances where the brain is not removed, we just see a shrunken brain and there's a lot of resin in the cranial wall. So, and this... You know, some people have thought that maybe this is because it's a cheaper version of mummification. But no, 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 this is not the case because we find this in pharaohs as well. So obviously they're getting the best mm. standard of mummification. So in Tutmosis, the first, second and third, for instance, their brains are intact. They, they were not removed. So... You know, we're not quite sure, and this this is what my research is going to be on to try and understand what's going on here. And so then after removing the brain, if it was going to be removed, they'd make an incision on the left abdominal area with a flint knife. And the embalmer would put their hand in the slit and remove the lungs, the liver, the stomach, and the intestines, which would be desiccated and wrapped and put into canopic jars. So there were four canopic jars. Now the heart was often left inside the body because the heart was very important to the ancient Egyptians. And in their religious belief, the heart, when they're going through the underworld, the heart was basically went through judgment. So the heart had to be kept in the body. And then of course, they would use aromatics because you can imagine the smell of decomposition. So they would use aromatics such as frankincense and myrrh. So, you know, these would provide a very strong fragrance. And then the body cavities were washed with palm wine and pine oil and infusion of ground spices. These basically would have had antibacterial and antifungal properties. I suppose one of the major concerns for the ancient Egyptians would have been insect infestation because there's certain insects that absolutely love the putrefaction part of decomposition and they actually feed on, the, on all these juices that come out of the body. So this would have been a major concern. So this is why the body cavities would have been washed. And after all that was done, um, the body would be covered in natron. So natron would have been brought from Wadi Natron. And um, basically natron, just to explain it a little bit, it's a combination of sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, sodium sulfide, and sodium chloride. So it's very salty. <laughs> yes, it's very salty. And in fact, you know, if people couldn't afford natron, they could just use table salt. So basically just, so it, the body would be engulfed basically in natron for about 35 to 40 days. And the natron would have desiccated the body. 
So after the desiccation was done, the body was sometimes stuffed with um, sawdust, straw, mud, just to make it a little bit more lifelike. Sometimes we even have artificial eyes added. You know, they, they would add onions sometimes as artificial eyes. And oh. um, yeah, it's interesting. That's not quite so <laughs> How did they keep the onions from decaying? Never mind, natron. <laughs> Salty onions, yum. So um, they would use water repellent products, to, you know, to create an impervious barrier because once the desiccation is done, you don't want moisture to enter the body again because it's the moisture that causes the decay. And then after all this is done, they, they would add an adhesive. So adhesives were either resins, so you have pine resin, cedar, mastic resin, or they would use a combination of everything with beeswax and even animal fat. So basically, after all this was done, um, the body was coated with the resins and then it was bandaged. And the bandaging was very complex, very complex and very ritualistic. They would use different colored linen sometimes. So we, we see a lot of red linen. So there seems to be some kind of significance to red linen and red linen of course it would have been dyed with madder sometimes iron oxide dye but we see white linen as well the whole process would take around 70 days um, this includes all the burial rituals such as opening of the mouth ceremony etc so all in all it was about 70 days Wow, that's a that's I think a lot longer than I would imagine your average funeral director in the modern day spends preparing a body and dispatching it. Exactly. <laughs> so where where did the body stay during this time? What 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 is was there any sort of um, holding facility for these bodies, or what do we know about that? So basically, I suppose you know they would stay in the embalming house and. Um, they haven't actually left us any written evidence of what they did. So this is why, you know, when um, in 2016, when Dr. Ramadan Hussain, you know, actually discovered a mummification workshop, we were all so excited because this is the first time we're actually properly seeing a structure which gives us some clues. So... You know, we, we, we don't know, but we, we can imagine much like modern funeral homes, there must have been some kind of holding chamber for the bodies. And of course, also, they imagine how many bodies they would have had and how right. to remember and, and who was like who. All in a different stage of the process, exactly. That, that's just what I was thinking as you were talking mm. about it. So this is, this is a really complicated organization. They did have sort of, um, on the toes, they would have these mummy tags, which would have the name of the deceased. So that's quite interesting. Oh my God. A bit like what we do now, maybe we're not putting right. no, I'm a just tag. thinking of all these CSI <laughs> and things like that. The morgue. Exactly. So they, you know, I think, you know, there's still so much left to discover. And it could be the case that a lot of Egyptologists in the past, you know, they might have discovered these structures, but not really realize what they are because earlier archaeological studies they were more concerned with the treasures and oh, um, right. that there's a chance that you know we might have come across structures such as morgues and nobody really knew what they were looking at so which is, which is a real shame but I know in the 1930s archaeologist um, Salim Hassan he reported a structure in Giza in Cairo, um, which he thought was a mummification workshop, but nothing much really sort of came up about that. So it wasn't really until uh, Dr. Ramadan Hussein in 2016, while he was um, excavating um, in Saqqara, he discovered, I mean, for me, it's the biggest discovery of all time because of my field and my interest. And I think, you know, it was a real game changer as well. So, you know, it's the first time for sure that we see a mummification workshop or a funeral home. 
And um, it's absolutely fascinating. And t- tell us, what, what did he find there that convinced him that that's what he had found? Yeah, so basically, he, you know, they used laser scanning technology. And what they actually found was a subterranean mummification workshop. And the thing that really convinced them is just things that they found inside. So there was this sort of industrial strength incense burner in one of the corners. That would be necessary for decomposition, you know, the smell. And like I mentioned before, keeping away the insects, really. You really want to keep the insects away. And he only he also found drainage channels to funnel the blood. They also actually, they also found sort of like a bed, which was slightly tilted, which makes sense. So that when they're carrying out, I suppose, you know, the evisceration, the blood would sort of go onto the drainage tunnels and sort of just funnel out. And they also found that the chamber had a natural ventilation system. And this would have definitely been important for mummification. You need good air circulation. And also the temperature in this chamber that they found was a lot cooler. Ah, for being underground, that makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. And and this yeah, 100% makes sense that decomposition happens faster in the heat. And we, you know, we always wondered where would they carry out these procedures? And I could never imagine them carrying it out in the open air in the heat. But this definitely makes sense. And the ventilation system was actually very good. And the other thing that they found was they actually found the vessels which had the resins for mummification. Ah. And what's amazing and what's fascinating, they they had words on them and they actually said the numbers of the day in which you would put a particular resin. So one jar might say day 14, another might say day 18. This is really interesting because it's... it's, So now what's happening is um, we're waiting for the results to be published. But um, Dr. Ramadan Hussain has basically said um, that 35 samples of residue um, have been tested using gas chromatography and um, the results are soon to be published. So I'm just anxiously waiting. I'm excited about this too now. That's amazing. So from the information retrieved, they found the Egyptian funeral workers were savvy entrepreneurs who provided a tier-based funerary service, much like that um, provided by modern funeral directors. So I suppose what um, they're saying is although the pharaohs and the elite were provided the deluxe service, with elaborate coffins and funerary goods. The ancient Egyptian undertakers were offering discount packages to suit every budget, basically. That is so savvy. That's so modern. (laughs) And I I know there's so much that we just have to guess about at this point, um, as, as you slowly are collecting more and more information in the field about how this industry actually worked. But Do we have any sense of how an individual got involved in this kind of work? You know, were there any credentials or, you know, was there any formal training set up? Do you think if you don't actually have hard evidence for how that worked? I think it would definitely have been um, a family business and passed on by family members just for two reasons. Firstly, because um, it was a trade secret, so you would pass it on from family member to family member. And even when we look at modern day funeral homes, a lot of them are family run homes. Because I think, you know, often when you ask a child what they want to do when they grow up, I'm yet to hear a child say they want to be a funeral director. (laughs) Yes, I might be concerned. You might actually make a little, you know, um, call to, to social services if so <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so you know I think and and we have a little bit of evidence from funerary items so there's basically a coffin that was discovered to um who was a mwamu so funeral director and his name I'm trying to remember his name I think it was Pakapu Pakapu and he's from around 600 AD so he had his name on the coffin, so we know that he was a funeral director. But 
it also talks a little bit about his father and his father was a funeral director as well. So we have this sort of evidence as well that it was passed on to family members. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a mm. lot of sense. And so I'm just kind of trying to imagine this bustling outfit, right? We're not sure exactly how it was physically laid out, but, um, you know, people die all the time. And this death process took a very long time per, per body. Um, it sounds like it would have been definitely a group affair as opposed to something that a, a person would pursue on a solitary basis. Yeah, exactly. So I think there was some um, huge infrastructure to do with burial. In fact, I think, you know, the whole funerary business was probably one of the most biggest industries in ancient Egypt. I think it was a hugely thriving business because everybody wanted an afterlife. And, you know, sometimes they wanted it so desperately that when we see times of hardship, such as the third intermediate period, we have evidence of family members actually basically, I don't, I don't know whether to call it borrowing or stealing other family members' coffins. Ooh. So we have evidence of coffin reuse, basically, where, you know, maybe Aunt Bastet or Great Aunt Bastet, you know, died and, the, you know, nephew is struggling a little bit with paying for a coffin so it would go into on great on bastard's tomb and basically um take her out of her coffin and put it to one side in the tomb and then take that coffin and get it redecorated and and you know they they did and how, did, how does one explain <laughs> oh i happen to find somebody must have left it on the corner to be taken away by the trash bin man no what do you <laughs> say when when you walk up with a coffin and say can you redecorate <laughs> just found it <laughs> well you know it's interesting and our egyptologist Kara Cooney, she's been working on this for years so it's fascinating to hear her stories about this it's really interesting so we think you know there was this um, cultural shift where it was almost accepted. So it would have still been done very discreetly and probably in, during the night when nobody was watching. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, and, you know, a group of, you know, a whole group of family would go into the tomb and, you know, remove the great aunt from her, you know, from her coffin and probably pray a little bit, ask her for forgiveness and say, say, sorry, you understand? we still love you. We still love you. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, this is, this actually, it, this brings to mind a really interesting project I worked on in, um, a, you know, much more recent time period, but Victorian London at a certain point was running out of burial ground. And there was mm -hmm. actually a, a very well sanctioned and public process whereby um, a family, which had a plot, in a cemetery and perhaps they needed a little extra cash. So it was actually a slightly different economic situation, but mm -hmm. they needed cash. Another family uh, doesn't have a plot, they have cash. And so graves were reused and the, you know, coffins would be left intact, but they would be removed and buried deeper in the plot, leaving room above for new ones. And the family purchasing the additional real estate within this family plot would have the right to reverse and reinscribe whatever existing monument was over the grave. So, you wow. know, I, people get as creative, I suppose, in preparing for death and its aftermath as they do in any other aspect of life when when the economics warrant it. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. So it just shows we're all human and we haven't actually really changed that much. The ancient Egyptians sure were does. just as human as we are. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, yeah, I guess, I guess this shouldn't surprise me. And as an anthropologist, it doesn't surprise me, but mm. it kind of delights me. You know, they, they, I suppose the cultural shift was, oh, you know, the coffin's not needed forever, really. You know, she's used it it's kind of like a resurrection machine. She's used it, now it's my turn to use it. So it's interesting how ideologies would shift slightly as well. 
do during times of hardship as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's so fascinating. And, and also, I think at the end of the day, in the case of the ancient Egyptians, what it speaks to is just how critically important this ritual was. And if you had even, you know, just a finger hold on the possibility of having it, you know, you were going to do what you needed to, to get all the way. Exactly, yeah. Would this position have been a coveted one and, and the people who did this work respected? You know, it's difficult to say, but I think that they would have been respected because they had a very important job. They're basically giving you the chance of an eternal life because for the ancient Egyptians, they believed to have eternal life, the body had to be intact. And this is why they carried out mummification. So if the body was not intact, you know, you'd be denied an afterlife and you'd be a wandering ghost for eternity. So the whole funerary workers had a very important job. And in a way, I suppose you wouldn't want to really get on their bad side either because you'd want to make sure they do a good job. Yeah, well, yeah. And I was just thinking as you said that, you know, what kind of quality control was there? I mean, you know, in the days before Yelp, presumably... (laughs) There was some way in which one could attract business or did people, you know, get a bad reputation if their, their mummies didn't survive, you know, an insect infestation or something like that. I, mean, I, I imagine it's probably very hard to point to specific cases, but do you have any sense of whether, you know, there was a great deal of competition on that level between the different providers of this service? Imagine, you know, that there would have been, I can imagine, you know, some of the embalmers would have had bad reputations, but um, there's a papyri called the Tomb Robbers Papyri, and that gives a little bit of information what's going on. And um, what we find is that um, they had to pay tax on the bodies that would come to the necropolis as well. So um, basically the funeral director was responsible for paying the taxes. And in cases where taxes weren't paid, he would get a bad reputation. And you know, the, the punishment in those days for not paying taxes is very different from now. You know, now we'd get a reminder letter, maybe get fined a little bit and you know, taken to court there, you were just, you were given a beating. If you did not pay your tax. I was going to say, would, would you need a space in the necropolis? I was wondering if it was that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, the, the one of the biggest worries probably was, like the worries that we have now, death and taxes, it wasn't any different then. But I do think they must have been held in quite high regard because they were almost like magic men creating this incredible magic where they're holding decomposition and um, it must have been a skill that people were just in awe of and just um, couldn't imagine how they did it because they wouldn't have known how they did it. So, um, but like you said, there's no way of unwrapping and making sure that the body is not decomposing once it's interred. You just have to hope for the best. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, was this, do you think, a lucrative business? I mean, were they actually paid money? Do we know? Yeah, you know, I, I do think it was a lucrative business. And although we don't know too much about how they were paid, but we do know that um, sometimes they were actually paid with arable land and the proceeds from a land. So oh, well, that paid, would be a very yeah, good payday, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. And we, we see this particularly from the late period, so around 600 BCE. But, um, you know... But this is a glimpse of how well they were paid. And and I suppose, you know, in a way, I feel the embalmers particularly deserve to get paid well for being for doing such a difficult job day in, day out. Were there any risks to working in this industry? I think, you know, I think probably one of the biggest risks would probably have been infection. And do you think they had an understanding of of how that worked, how disease worked? Well, you know, I think, you know, the ancient Egyptians were amazing physicians, and I think sometimes they're not given enough credit. I think um, 
they, they understood disease a lot more than we think they did. But we're finding that a lot of their medicine did actually work. And I think, you know, because um, it was the priestly class that dealt with mummification, they were very clean. So I think hygienically, they were quite at the top with hygiene already. So they, they seem to understand this and there were a lot of libations with, you know, so I think they did understand hygiene to a certain extent. And a lot of the resinous material that they were using was antibacterial as well. Despite that, there definitely would still have been a risk of um, catching infections, etc. for sure. Sophia, you are doing your graduate work at the KNH Center at um, University of Manchester. Can you tell us a little bit about what is special about that research center? Okay, so um, the KNH Center at the University of Manchester basically plays a host to a multidisciplinary team of academics, staff, and research students in the fields of bioarchaeology and Egyptology. It has a very interesting history. So mummy studies started here in 1907 when Dr. Murray was one of the first oh, to wow. undertake. So that's really Yeah, old. we're talking wow. way back. Exactly. And she was actually a pioneer. She was the first to undertake a multidisciplinary study on two mummies, which have become very famous, especially in Manchester. They're known as the two brothers. So after this, this area of research was reinstated by Professor Rosalie David, who's an amazing Egyptologist. And um, it was followed by the establishment of the ancient mummy tissue bank. So this is tissue that's been retrieved from ancient Egypt, you know, from um, Egypt and Nubia. What's unique about it is that it provides um, the a type of study which is not offered actually in any other university, as far as I know, in the, in the world. The, so biomedical Egyptology as a degree is only available in this particular center. Can we imagine that a modern day undertaker has gone back to ancient Egypt? What would they you know, what would they think about how things were being done there? Can we, can we kind of surmise a little bit? You know, incredibly, I don't think a modern undertaker would be too shocked because I think, you know, the Egyptians appeared to carry out their funerary business in an astute and dignified way. And um, not, they didn't have the equipment that the modern undertakers have. But I think if you look at what was available to them, they did a pretty good job. But I think, you know, if anything, I think the length of time would shock a modern undertaker, 70 days is um, very yeah. excessive. <laughs> and I think, you know, the rituals that were involved as well, they were really lengthy rituals. And maybe they would feel sorry for them for the working conditions, <laughs> yeah. possibly. Likely underground. Um, yeah. Well, but at least it's cool. It's sort of like the... Uh, mm. Poor, poor man's air conditioning in, in the Egyptian desert. Exactly. <laughs> but what I find interesting is that embalming still happens. You know, we, we still, you know, bodies are still embalmed with um, formaldehyde and um, sort of modern formalin. I think, you know, when you think about it, we, we're still trying to make the body look beautiful and, you know, it, it just helps the grieving family when this is done. So, I'd, and also we've got um, people like Lenin, who uh, was mummified. And apparently, I think I read somewhere that in Utah, in America, there's a funeral company that does mummification the ancient Egyptian way. Oh, wow. Well, mm. I mean, you know, I think what I feel like I have caught more um, press on lately is cryogenic work and experimentation that honestly could perhaps promise everlasting life in the sense that we at least can imagine it working from a modern scientific perspective, you know, put somebody into cryogenic suspension and basically unfreeze them at some future time and voila, they will wake up and be themselves again. You know, that, that strikes me as, as 
frankly, pretty loopy, you know, and a lot of these mm. people have simply had their heads preserved, you know, because yeah. we understand that the brain and not the heart, yes. as the ancient Egyptians felt was the center of, of um, consciousness and the soul, such as one defines it, but, oh, it's all really interesting. And it, and it goes to show you that, I mean, we're always looking for the ticket to to, to extending this life, right? I mean, we, we exactly. did an episode recently on alchemy and, you know, it was just really fascinating to reflect on how, you know, all the way from the ancient Egyptians up to the modern day, we've, we've just been hustling any way we could to, to try to hedge our bets. And you, know, you, you mentioned the brain and for me, I'm absolutely fascinated with the brain because it's the most complex thing in the whole universe and we're learning so much about the brain and for me this is what my research um, subject is modification of the brain and this is what i'm starting with the knh center this year and i've have found evidence where i feel the ancient egyptians knew a little bit more about the brain than we give them credit for and of course when we're talking about mummification we we sometimes find that the brain was kept in the, in the cranial vault. And um, sometimes we find that they didn't retain the heart. So this is really interesting. So this is something that I'm working on at the moment. But yeah, to have, so basically to have another life, we probably just need the head, we just need the brain. So it's fascinating. That's the idea. I mean, well, I can't wait to hear what you come up with. And I'm sure that you're going to do great things in this subject. So keep us posted. Thank keep you. Keep us posted. Um, you know, do you think you would have made a good ancient Egyptian funerary worker, Sophia? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I don't think I could have been an embalmer day in, day out. So dealing with the reality of death on a daily basis and carrying out endless eviscerations, craniotomy, I just think that would have been really difficult. The smell of death, the decomposing corpses, I mean, it's not for the faint-hearted. But the scientists in me would certainly have wanted to give it a go at least once, maybe twice. But doing it for a living, I think that would have been difficult. But perhaps I could have been an undertaker, the funeral director, for sure, because um, I, I've had a business and um, I've been a businesswoman. So I think that part of it I could probably do. But it wasn't an easy job. <laughs> what about you, Karen? What do you think? No. Oh, no. You know what? <laughs> well, all right. I, was, I have a real aversion to blood maybe by the, if, if I could come across the corpse after the blood had been drained, maybe my curiosity would take <laughs> over. I mean, as a young child, I did not dream of becoming an archeologist. I'd sort of dash everybody's romantic concepts about me, but I wanted to be a doctor. I mean, I was the nerd whose hero was Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman doctor. <laughs> so we had to go into school and do these like biographies of our heroes and everybody else. I was in the Boston area. Everybody, everybody did John F. Kennedy Jr., the president. Right. <laughs> and I, no, I did Elizabeth Blackwell. Well, that that was all great until I discovered that anytime I cut myself, I basically passed out. So um, no, you know what? I, I'm probably too much to the squeamish side, but um, <laughs> maybe, maybe we could have partnered up as yeah. fabulous female funeral directors in Definitely. Egypt. <laughs> Definitely. Oh. <laughs> well, Sophia, thank you so much for taking the time to share your really interesting and important work with us. And I hope you will keep us posted with all of your new discoveries. I will do. And thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. <laughs> As Sophia shared, the nuts and bolts of ancient Egyptian funerary practices have remained a mystery since the ritual tricks of the trade were closely guarded secrets, never written down. But advanced techniques in archaeology and biomedical Egyptology are yielding truly astounding new insights into the unrecorded details of ancient Egypt's death care industry. 
These largely non-invasive research methods preserve and respect intact mummified human remains, even while they manage to unlock their invaluable archaeological evidence. It's a win-win approach for sure. And if there's any clear upshot to our discussion with Sophia, it's that working with death has always been a killer business move. Yeah, that's my last corny joke of the day, I promise. Thanks as always for joining us, and we'll see you next week. You can follow today's guest on Twitter at SophiaAziz5 and on Instagram at Sophia underscore Aziz underscore. For more info on Sophia's incredible work, just do yourself a favor and Google K&H Center. Do it. Working Overtime is on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries, with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. Can't wait to clock in with you next time. Until next week. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aiden Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>